0: This is Fresh Shed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Climate change and its effects aren't some future possibility waiting to happen unless we take action today. No. The effect from climate change is already occurring. Today. Right now. Around the world, people have been displaced, fell ill, or died because of the globe's warming climate these effects are, of course, uneven. Some countries and classes of people are more affected by global warming than others. Still, the United Nations estimates that catastrophic consequences from climate change are only a decade away. That's the year 2029. What's the role of education policy in an era of detrimental climate change? My guest today is Marcia McKenzie. Professor in the Department of Educational Foundations at the University of Saskatchewan and Director of the Sustainability Education Research Institute. She recently has been awarded a grant to research United Nations policy programs in relation to climate change and education, and in June, we will release a report for the United Nations that reviews country progress on climate change education and education for sustainable development.
1: Uh, looking at what uh, different countries are doing, I think that is really key. And you know, I'm hopeful. I don't know if it's naive, maybe, but uh, because education is a commitment that member parties, you know, have signed on to in committing to the, with the joining the UNFCCC framework that you know if we can develop better data and uh, on what countries are doing and then use that to sort of leverage change then you can kind of compare and contrast so who's got it in their formal education system and how are they doing it right so that's going back to the First point, it's not just, is it there, but how is it being done? It's, it's the quality as well as the quantity and developing that that data, which, I mean, we have the capability to do
0: that. In our conversation, we talk about what countries are doing or not doing in terms of education and sustainability, and we reflect on some of the existential questions climate change brings to the fore. So, Marcy McKenzie, welcome to Fresh Ed.
1: Thank you very much. Great to be chatting with you.
0: So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN body, the IPCC, I think, is the the acronym, says that there is a decade left to make significant changes uh, to avoid catastrophic consequences from climate change itself. Um, so, what role do you think education plays in mitigating some of these catastrophic consequences from climate change that the IPCC mm-hmm. says might happen in? 10 years. I mean, that is
1: 2030. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with David Suzuki, a Canadian environmentalist, but um, who uh, created his foundation decades ago. And he says now, if he knew how long it was going to take us to take action, he would have got into education (laughs) much earlier. So um, yeah, I mean, we see that the problems with climate change, it's not because we don't have the scientific uh, understanding of what's happening. It's not that we don't have the technical ability to um, move to other energy forms and um, address climate change and, you know, mitigate still the worst of its impacts, but, uh, but we, we don't. We're not taking the action that's needed because we lack the, the will, um, you know, socially and um, culturally and politically. So I think uh, that, and that is the role of education in terms of, um, as the UNFCCC, which is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was um, signed back in 1992 with all the different um, member parties that uh, meets every year at the COP meetings, and there is a, a commitment to education, training, and public awareness that's in in that agreement that member parties to the UNFCCC have signed on to. but. Um, you know, because because we don't have a lot of research on it, you know, any data, we don't even really have a good understanding of what makes good climate change education. you know, there we haven't been doing as much as as we can be or could right. be. Um, and yet there's this you know recognition and even in that that 2018 IPCC report, the recognition that we really need to be doing a better job of education um, in order to. Have people you know um, pushing for the change we need, right so so
0: basically you're saying that everyone recognizes education is like deeply important, yeah, but we one, we don't know exactly what all these different countries are doing, and two, we don't know what actually makes good education for or about climate change to mitigate some of these solutions so I mean and we have 10 years before. <laughs> that seems like a pretty big challenge. So what do we do first? Is it the first step to just sort of get an understanding of what's happening around the, the world in all countries that are signatory to that convention? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think, you know, both both can be done in conjunction. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is quite a bit of... Uh, good work and understanding in other disciplinary fields say on the sociology of climate change denial um carrie norgaard's work for example where she talks about not just the um you know the what you might think of as denial in terms of uh, saying no climate change is not caused by humans where you know we don't even agree it's happening but more the subtle forms of denial that you and i and you know most listeners are probably engaged in where you yes you know climate change is happening you know that it's being caused mostly by human activity and yet because of the realities of does this mean um you know the planet's not going to be habitable for humans within a generation or two and we don't know how to take action you know people turn away from it right so she calls it implicatory denial where you
0: you are implicated in it you don't know what to do you kind of uh, live this double life I understand that climate change happens but I'm still going to Flight eat red meat or, or fly to conferences <laughs> yeah. and buy a big SUV and
1: exactly so as and there's other literature as well in anthropology climate change communication around the importance of framing um, such um, emotional issues in terms of cultural frames and um, priorities that are important for different groups whether it's a you know, business community uh, um, Christian uh, religious community or indigenous community, um, and Candice Callison, who's an anthropologist, she's, and um, media studies person, has written about that as well in a really powerful way. So I think we need to be bringing those insights that have been developing over the past decade or so in other fields more into education uh, and into, you know, both policy and practice, where, because what we see right now, a lot of what's being done uh, as climate change education, whether it's informal education, um, K-12, or higher education or in uh, science communication, for example, that governments may be doing and so on, is still very much just based on um, educating people on the science of climate change.
0: Like it exists. Yeah, and, and here's how it, it works,
1: exists. and sort of with the assumption that therefore people are going to be empowered to want right. to take rise. action, Yeah, right. but but we know, um, you know, from longer histories of research in environmental education, as well as other... Um, you know, fields that have looked at things like like Holocaust education, when things are so emotional, so difficult that um, you really need to take those those aspects on and wrap it into how we do education. So, um, and not just be teaching the science, but actually uh, look at ways to engage people in yes, this is difficult, and there is grief involved, and there is loss, and, and how do you kind of wade through that, you know, in, in engaging it so that we actually look at it uh, rather than look away. Right. And um, it,
0: It's quite existential.
1: Yeah. Isn't it realizing,
0: yeah. like, you, we could be the last generation of the human species?
1: Yeah, and, no, it's and awful. how then
0: do you teach about it? I mean, it, it is it is totally emotional. It is totally yeah. Devastating in a way, and I, I mean that connection to the Holocaust. I—I I, I never made that connection, mm. but I can see where educators might learn a lot from right. Holocaust yeah. education and other sort of genocide yeah. conflict issues that yeah. people yeah. had to work through. And I guess
1: the um, the second part you're asking about in terms of uh, looking at what uh, different countries are doing, I think that is really um, key. And you know, I'm hopeful. I don't know if it's naive, maybe, but uh, Uh, Because education is a commitment that member parties, you know, have signed on to in um, committing to with the joining the UNFCCC uh, framework that, um, you know, if we can develop better data and uh, on what countries are doing and then use that to sort of leverage change. So if you can say, okay, um, say. What you know in Canada, we're doing this in uh, you know Sweden, they're doing that, and you can kind of compare and contrast. So who's got it in their formal education system, and how are they doing it? Right. So it's the, going back to the first point. It's not just is it there, but how is it being right. done? It's what's the quality as well as the quantity, and um, developing that that data. Which I mean, we have the capability to do that, and we just um, a study will be released in in um, later this uh, year in a few months. Developed uh, that we did with UNESCO and the UNFCCC, and it was an analysis of all the country submissions to the UNFCCC from 194 uh, member countries to look at how they're already talking about how they're engaging in climate change education in those submissions, so that we can, by pulling that out of the submissions and looking at it in you know um, together, then we can. Sort of set some here. Here's a baseline of where we're at, or where we're at with our reporting, and where could we be next year or the year after, with through the COP process.
0: Right, and so that is. It sounds like what you're describing is using some sort of evidence, global evidence, comparable evidence from all different countries involved in the UN, but really it being used as a political project to sort of. Mm-hmm force particular change to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it, That's what it sounds like. It almost reminds me of PISA, right? you know, the yeah. using the sort of same test all over the world, and then, it, you know, it has become very, very political, and there's plenty yeah. of research about that.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of, because um, oh, I consider myself a critical researcher, a critical policy researcher, and, um, you know, a lot of the work done on, on large-scale assessment and, and testing is quite you know, there's a lot of skepticism and concern and how do you compare across different countries and socioeconomic considerations and all these, you know, it's very uh, complicated and fraught. And so it, you know, it's kind of um, ironic, I guess, to be in the situation of, of thinking, well, here's a, an issue where, you know, we're running out of time. If there's any chance that data can help us, then let's mobilize that. Right. right? Any tool uh, we can find, yeah, let's exactly. use it.
0: So what would what would worry you? I mean, if in this sort of political project and getting this data you know are there worries because you Mm -hmm. know from a critical scholar you look at other examples like PISA and sure there's Mm -hmm. plenty to be critical about PISA and Mm -hmm. I've had people on the show talk very critically about about it so when when you're thinking through this this climate change education or education about climate change and sustainability what are the worries Mm -hmm. that you might have Mm
1: -hmm. So yeah, I guess one of my concerns potentially with with amassing that kind of um, global data uh, is the way that um, these type of things can be used, almost like branding on a product you'd buy in the supermarket where it says it's green and then it's sort of like right. guilt-free shopping or whatever. But often there's, you know, we call it greenwashing, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a sustainable product or it's much more complicated oh. and th- things going on behind the scenes. So, I mean, that is a concern anytime you're using data like this to kind of give gold stars or silver stars or you know who's doing it right um or they get you know kind of get off the hook like oh, okay right. you've got it there you say and on paper that you're doing it therefore that's good enough right. um so uh and and what's represented in a, in a policy document doesn't necessarily reflect what's happening um on the ground either so you know there are definite limitations yeah. to um that type of assessment. I mean, anything that there is so far around education and sustainability, more broadly, uh, you know, at a, a global level of data collection is self-reported data. So, say that's collected through UNESCO. Um, right now, there is some, and that's what's being used in some of the um, the indicators related to education and sustainability currently. But so there.
0: So there's a validity issue. There's right?
1: a validity issue. So right. yeah. So it. I mean, at least something that's not you know it's good to also have things that are not self-reported as right. well as the so, self-reported options but then even better it would be finer finer grained analysis like you know comparative case studies right. uh, at a global level that can help us also um inform our understandings of what makes quality climate change education that is able to kind of empower and and lead to changed action and that's culturally uh, you know appropriate in different mm-hmm. settings and
0: So what sort of examples can you point to, like, currently that we Mm -hmm. know about of, you know, quote-unquote, good policy into action, you know, things happening on the ground in schools or or in a country, you know, I'm not even sure. Yeah. Um,
1: Well, in the research, um, and I should say I I direct the Sustainability and Education Policy Network, um, which is a partnership of international uh, researchers and organizations, and so we've been doing um, research in Canada last number of years, comparative research there and also doing some other global projects. But um, looking at the Canadian example, um, you know, BC is somewhere that stands out for its action around uh, climate change and other sustainability issues in in, um, both K-12 and formal education as well as more broadly. And so there's a number of things that lead into or I think support um, that action or that activity I mean one just culturally it's on the west coast it's got you know more of a uh, cultural priorities prioritization but that's um, led to different things like uh, provincial mandates for um, uh, carbon action plans within within schools and then we've got say the city of Vancouver it has a green mandate with the uh, municipal politics so all these things kind of coalesce together so that you see stronger policy and curriculum at say the ministry of ed, uh, level, which would be where, you know, where the cu- curriculum is developed for the province, as well as at um, different school division levels, yeah. as well as at the, the, in- the post-secondary institutions like UBC is well known for mm. its, um, sustainability work. So yeah. And, and there's, I mean, great organizations there as well. Um, like the Canadian um, Center for Policy Alternatives uh, has a, a BC branch that's been, has developed great um, climate justice curriculum that uh, a lot of teachers are
0: using in right. schools, so... So there's a lot of work happening in that part of Canada, yeah. and it seems like it's government, it's non-governmental, schools are involved, cities yep. are involved, they have the, the Green Mandate in Vancouver. How much of that is connected to the sustainable development goals of the UN, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, so, you know, is, is that something that's happening because they're doing it for their own sort of political, economic reasons in, Mm -hmm. you know, Western Canada, or is it being, is it a response from, oh, the SDGs are sort of here and we have to meet them, you know, like, that, yeah, that's...
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and, um, one of the things I'm really interested in is policy mobility right. so how these things like the SDGs uh, where do they come from and then what impact do they have in different countries or different regions and I think um, there's a couple of different things you know that could factor into uptake of the SDGs or the you know what effect they've had I mean one is you hear about organizations or governments who uh, you know keep doing what they're doing but they kind of Orient it uh, to the the you know flavor of the day or whatever yeah, global <laughs> globally, speak. right? So I've talked to organizations that are like, well, you know, we were doing education for sustainable development. Now we're going to do SDGs. You know, that's what we put on our grant applications. We don't our programs don't change, but right. So I think you know there's some of that, but at the same time, I think the the, the global policy programs do have a big uh, effect and um, in, in some places, like my the province where I live in Canada, in Saskatchewan, we've seen absolutely the effect of the uh, UNESCO decade of education for sustainable development. Um, which, in what
0: ways? Like how, do, what, how so, does it manifest?
1: So, you know, in, in 2009 there, there was a minister's mandate around environment conservation and sustainability. So mm-hmm. they were recognizing, okay, we need to be doing more on this, we need to get it into the curriculum. Right. And then they, uh, you know, talked to folks next door in Manitoba where they had been working with education for sustainable development and the deputy minister there, the K-12 level had, you know, was involved in the Council of Ministers of Education, which is sort of a national advisory body of all the provincial ministries. And he had been seconded to UNESCO. So you see this kind of flow through of actually that, you know, Gerald Farthing, this deputy uh, minister at the time in Manitoba, and other folks uh, as well that are, you know, back and forth between UNESCO Paris and the ESD section there and different Canadian places, and this would be, you know, parallel in some other countries, but then you get the flow through so that, you know, the Ministry of Education in my province is talking to Manitoba, and suddenly, you know, they bring in the same folks to do the training of educational leaders and the right. school divisions across the province
0: in ESD, so then, you know, when so there is a policy policy flow That's and, it, right. and it, does it go back to UNESCO? Like does the, the lessons and experiences of the teachers who are getting this training and putting it into practice get sort of that knowledge get picked up and somehow yeah.
1: is mobile
0: back through the channels yeah. to UNESCO to inform the SDGs and what they do in other countries or how they conceptualize what you know quote unquote mm-hmm. good practices?
1: Yes, I think that is the case that there's some of that. Uh, we just got some new funding to do a study of uh, three UN policy programs that have a focus on climate change education. And when we were, we did some initial pilot interviews for that and talking to folks um, from different countries that have been involved with UN programs before, we really heard from them uh about how say through um, UNESCO people uh, coming to, there's uh, someone from Southern Africa that we interviewed, who is involved in the environmental education and um, ESD work there, and, and through UNESCO people coming to their meetings, they were able to give feedback on what was working or not working, or priorities in different South African, um, Southern African countries, and to feel like that was taken back to UNESCO and then shaped kind of later
0: right.
1: renditions of things. So I think there is is some of that for sure.
0: Yeah, and then I mean, then you, the UNESCO Secretariat would have to sort of leverage that knowledge. To push other countries in ways. I mean, there, there's a. It's a very political process, really. You know, I mean, that's what I'm. For me, that's what's so fascinating is how UNESCO has to. It's member driven, but that secretariat also yes. has a very sort of clear political agenda, and we just hope or that they're 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 doing yeah. it right and they're going to be successful. And you yeah. know, they have a lot of power behind the SDGs in a way.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting uh, and. Uh, kind of who who is at the table of deciding what these policy programs are going right. to be, and and different countries that support different policy programs. Like ESD had its origins in um, Japan, and right. and Japan's very supportive of UNESCO, and and so yeah, there's a lot of interesting politics. There.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I read like SDG four point seven, you know, I mean, it's like this yeah. catch all indicator, sub indicator, and you know you see that education for sustainable development the ESD which definitely comes from Japan that's where I live and so it's a really right, really right, really right. big yeah. thing but then you in Korea and it's you know as Aaron Benevat was
1: global telling me education.
0: it's all about global citizenship yeah. education so how do they fit together you know like do they fit together or is it just we're using this discourse to please two different nation
1: states mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's it's very interesting I mean the global citizenship kind of came along after in in kind of uh, the the work of UNESCO, from what I understand, but they are both under uh, one division. So there's uh, you know a section of ESD and a section of global citizenship, and they work together right. as colleagues. And there's a lot of overlap, obviously, depending how you understand education for sustainable development. But um, you know uh, it it does definitely have social social aspects in there that would overlap with some of the global citizenship. Right. Um, priorities. So, you know, in another, some other work we've been doing um, for a report that will be launched in June as well, a 10 country study and uh, looking at focus on ESD and global citizenship education across uh, hmm. the um, education policies and curricula of 10 countries. And so you can kind of um, see through that process, you know where where there's overlap and, and which countries may focus more on the environmental aspects versus you know, social and um, right. citizenship aspects. And and I don't know. I I, I uh, I'm interested to find out more about that uh, in terms of the, the politics of the uh, different countries. But I don't think I can uh, yeah. comment on that. Yeah, well, well, no point. worries. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's so
0: fascinating to see how these different because it is a member state organization. Yeah. And so the member states have a lot of power, but the secretariat is sort of managing all of this. Yeah. And so the politics in that sort of global level is really quite yeah. fascinating. And I think quite hidden as well. And we, you know, it's it's very hard, unless you are at that table, yeah. it's very hard to know what is actually happening.
1: And I think my sense is that the UNFCCC is even more so, uh, you know, really, Sees itself or is understood as uh, kind of meant to be neutral and facilitating mm. the process for member states, but uh, priorities or um, kind of motions need to come from the member states. So, when mm. talking to Adriana Valenzuela, who's the education focal point for the UNFCCC, and. And um, about how great it would be if we could get education, uh, you know, data on the negotiating table. And she's like, yeah. oh, that sounds great, but we can't bring that forward. Right. We would need to be a member state. So it's almost yeah. like, you know, we, I would need to maybe work with Environment and Climate Change Canada to bring it to the negotiating right. yeah. table to then see if we could get it there. Whereas I think there seems to be a little, you know, UNESCO doesn't have that same framework of the COP meetings and, you right. know, um, decision-making and what's going to be included and, you know, nationally determined contributions being put forward under the Paris Agreement and everything. It's much more kind of technical at right. the UNFCCC. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really quite fascinating. It makes, as an academic, I keep thinking, like, it would be so great to do, like, an ethnography of that yeah. sort of global process to well, really... Well,
1: that's what we're... we're uh, you're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do, yeah. have <laughs> <laughs> just gotten funding to do it, so...
0: Well, you'll have to come back on yeah. and tell me <laughs> about it once you end up doing it. One of the things that I struggle with, with the SDGs and thinking about education for sustainability or you uh-huh. know to reduce climate change is the inclusion of economic growth in the SDGs. It's one of the SDGs, it's 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 seen as what country should be maximizing, uh-huh. having more growth which you know will put more carbon into the air which will ultimately uh-huh. Rid, you know, make climate change even worse into the future, uh-huh. and at the same time, including all these environmental sustainability goals of trying to make the world more sustainable. Uh-huh. And I just, what I guess, though, for me, those are a contradiction, and I don't, I don't know how education for sustainability will uh-huh. square that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Contradiction.
1: Yeah, there's been discussion of that for sure um, because you could be, say, moving forward climate action while increasing gender disparity, you know. Uh, so, um, kind of the conversation that you need to be moving them all forward, not some at the, the expense right. of others, but that's the hard to do with 17 exactly. <laughs> priorities and never mind all the, you know, uh, I think it's 169 targets. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable. Under the 17 goals. Um, but it, it's the same problem that we've had with sustainability before that, or say education for sustainable development where which a lot of people see as having at least three pillars as they're often called of you know the social, the economic, and the environmental and and um, oftentimes people would you know or still do separate those three out and so you know in my province where this is a priority, then I've had uh, superintendents tell me, well, yeah, we've got it in the curriculum now, we do it in our school division, and so if you're doing economy, social, or environment, you can tick that you're doing this. Right,
0: just one of the three is good enough. So, I mean,
1: it basically, that's everything humans would be concerned with, has something to do with the social or, you know, (laughs) the environment. So, um, you know, it becomes meaningless. So I, I think it is a challenge. For the SDGs, even more so in a sense, because at least with three pillars, you can say, okay, these need to be nested, and mm-hmm. you know, you can't have economic uh, prosperity or without, you know, if it's harming the environment or harming the social. Like right. they you know, uh, environment's kind of the biggest, and then social, then economy, and they're right. nested together. Um, whereas the SDGs with seventeen, it's uh, much more complicated. It, exactly. So,
0: I mean, it seems like we need to have different definitions of, like, so of the economic, we, you know, what does economic prosperity mean? I, you know, to me, it seems like we need a new way to define that rather than GDP per capita, for instance, right? I mean, because if that's the the goal, then it's, you know, we're going to sacrifice all these other things that we say we care about.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, there was a presentation yesterday on the OECD and and, um, one of the... Uh, folks that have worked there in the past was talking about how they're just starting to look at well-being
0: indexes mm-hmm. and so I don't know
1: see you. right It'd be great to see if, okay, more yeah. countries go that way <laughs> 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 sooner rather than later
0: yeah, yeah. I mean are, are you a um, optimistic person like are, do you think that you know in these 10 years mm-hmm. that we're now saying is sort of the critical moment so for 2020 to 2030 for instance Mm-hmm. Do you think we're, you know, the the global community is really going to be able to radically alter its practices through education?
1: Yeah. I I don't know. Um it, it may be through other means you know it's been really interesting the last few months to see the school climate strikes and uh, you know from starting with one person and but you know that it's on everyone's kind of minds and hearts and mm-hmm. suddenly people are out there all over the the globe doing um, climate action strikes in schools and so I think it, you know it's I hope that something, that that type of activity will just build as, you know, we've all got it kind of weighing on us, but no one feels like they can do enough on their own. Obviously, we've, you know, our governments aren't taking... (laughs) Yeah, a
0: lot of governments, say, go back to school. Yeah. don't strike. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So I think education isn't part of that, you know, potentially for, uh, you know, the more we can do, the better to Mm -hmm. give more people the skills to... Um, feel they can take action and make change and have the knowledge that they need and to be able to work together and and all those things. But, I mean, within the timeframes, it's um, realistically, you know, it's going to have to be other things as well or, you know, some of those people that are educated mobilizing a lot of other people. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. And I think it's also... uh, the question of, you know, we always talk about climate change mitigation and adaptation. Well, what does climate change adaptation education look like, right? If,
0: and what would that be? Adapting to a total, like, you know, flooding yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And two degrees hotter everywhere. and
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think part of the key to the mitigation part too probably is because it's such an emotional, difficult issue that we need to be facing you know, the impacts and how people around the world are already, you know, being devastated by um, the weather, you know, effects related to climate change
0: and and so on. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I mean, like, how do you prepare? I mean, there's already countless deaths happening from climate change and climate migration is happening all over the place already. And it's only going to get worse. There's going to be more deaths caused by climate change, you know, hundreds of millions or billions. You know, it's... Yeah. probably pretty hard if you're a demographer to sort of calculate that out. Yeah. But some percentage of that will be children. It'll be a lot of children that will end up yeah. dying. And so the question is, like, you know, climate change adaptation education, mm-hmm. you know, how do you teach the ability to grieve for that yeah. large number of people? Right, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of, this is why for me it becomes this sort of like existential moment
1: yeah yeah no i know i I have a 13 year old daughter and i i don't actually talk to her very much about my work Mm. in this area i mean i tell her i do research and work on sustainability and climate change education but i don't go on at length about right (laughs) the outlook Uh, and but she through through the climate um school strikes she learned more through some of her friends and came home just a couple of weeks ago in tears you know writing, writing drawing in her journal about we only have 12 years left you know why isn't anyone doing anything and uh, you know it's it's intense
0: that's powerful yeah yeah so and but don't you like that seems to be what is needed you know like that sort of powerful emotional response yeah, yeah. to like a cliff that's
1: yeah, exactly in the
0: distance that we can see we're begin it's coming yeah. into view
1: yeah yeah, no, I know. And we were talking about what's what's needed and how we need to change, you know, lifestyles and our um, expectations. And you know, we were talking about what would it be like to move into an apartment. She's like, well, that's not a problem. Like, I'd rather, let's move, you know, move into an apartment rather than, you know, half the planet or worse right. goes extinct. Like, yeah. obviously. Yeah, right? Like you're so, willing to
0: sacrifice yeah. <laughs> some sort of luxuries now knowing that it actually could, yeah. you know, I mean, that is sort of that change in attitude that, yeah, we were talking about earlier, you know, it's like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be eating meat right. all the yeah. time, and I shouldn't be flying around the yeah. world, and I shouldn't be. But I
1: think it's, you know, it's one thing for, you know, people in their 40s or 60s or 80s, you know, you can think, oh gosh, you know, what's, it, is it going to be really bad for our kids or our grandkids' mm. generation, or, but it's another thing for a child to look forward, forward and say, yeah. you know, am I going to be able to live out right. my full life, or is it going to be you know, just a, a nightmare before then. So yeah, it's very...
0: And is that sort of conversation happening at the global level? Because to me that seems to be the most important conversation to be having. Mm-hmm. But is it being reflected in some of these sort of you know, the global meetings on educa- on climate change and sustainability and you know, what we can do. Is that even being like, you know, it's certainly not an indicator. In no way is it an indicator right. of <laughs> <Yeah>. the SDGs.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it, people are aware and, you know, it's the underlying passion, you know, um, like someone like Aaron Benevote, who um, was director of the GEM report, Global Education Monitoring Report, and, uh, you know, they focused the last uh, GEM report that he did was uh, had a focus on sustainability and was really um, fantastic. But you can tell he's, you know, he's got that that passion in him and for a lot of people that are doing this work they they have that in them they may have you know we all have hypocrisies or things where you know trade-offs but um yeah that that is driven by that desire to do change but sometimes when you when you get together at a meeting then you kind of take that as an assumption and just move on to trying to
0: move things forward. Well, Marcia McKenzie, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Please come back on when you have more of this ethnography of what's happening at the global level. Great. Thank you very much
1: for having me. Great to meet you.
0: Marcia McKenzie is a professor in the Department of Educational Foundations at the University of Saskatchewan and director of the Sustainability Education Research Institute. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. FreshEd's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.